You've found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Now, before we get started with today's show, let me just repeat something that I said at the beginning of last week as well. Uh, if you send me an email, I promise you I'll get to it. Uh, my plan, my kind of tentative plan here is to do a show in the next few weeks dedicated really entirely to just answering your questions that you've emailed to me about Oak Island. So just sit tight. Um, I'll get your answers soon. But you know what? Another problem here is uh, you guys ask some really difficult and really fascinating questions. Uh, some of these answers to your questions Questions take a kind of a decent amount of time to research and, you know, come up with an answer. It really is just another thing I love about the listeners of this show. So don't forget, if you have any questions or comments that you want to try and, and, and have me answer on a future podcast, you can just send them to me via email, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. So now on to this week's topic. Last summer, I set out on this journey, this podcasting journey, uh, a, a journey to try my best to you know, discover the truth, as I say, behind the centuries-old mystery of Oak Island. To try and cut away the noise caused by television producers, social media, and that kind of thing. And the point behind this podcast was to bring you, the listeners, along for this ride with me. Now, I have two ways that I really thought about how we're going to go about doing this. One was to critically review the Curse of Oak Island television show. Uh, we, we've done that quite a bit, and we'll continue to do that during the course of the show's airing. The other was that as I went through the process of researching topics directly and perhaps even somewhat indirectly related to Oak Island, I thought perhaps uh, a few fellow Oak Island fans and enthusiasts just might find that research somewhat interesting to listen to in podcast form. So with that second goal in mind, I decided there was really two main avenues that I can go down with this research. The first is what you heard a kind of a portion of in last week's podcast. It's to dig deep down into the timeline of the actual dig itself. You know, what happened? Who did what and when? That sort of thing. Who did the digging? What did they find? What techniques did they use? You know, what were the results of their work? You get the idea. And we'll certainly return to that timeline in the coming weeks. But the second avenue I kind of want to go down, which is the one we're going to do today, is for me to try and learn as much as I possibly can about the real history, the historical figures, the historical topics surrounding Oak Island and associated somewhat with Oak Island. Not just the theories and the people related to those theories, but also getting as a much better understanding of the history of Oak Island and of Nova Scotia and of Atlantic Canada and the world, really, during the time periods most often called into question by theorists trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. So with that in mind, I'm joined today by Dr. Carly Kehoe. She is a history professor and the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Communities at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Dr. Kehoe focuses much of her studies on what I would kind of, I mean, <laughs> using a layman's description here, I would describe it as sort of different cultures and the different people who migrated to and really made up uh, Atlantic Canada during the colonial period in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, now, there are many cultures that she studies, but there are 
two in particular that I felt really pertain to our story of Oak Island and our research into the history of Oak Island. One is the Scottish population in Nova Scotia, and we're going to get to the Scots in a future show. But for this podcast, we discuss the thousands of former enslaved people who made their way from what we now call the American South to freedom, whatever that might have looked like, in Atlantic Canada. Now, it may go without saying that one of the most enigmatic and interesting characters in the entire Oak Island saga is a man named Samuel Ball. During this past season of The Curse of Oak Island, we saw archaeologist Laird Niven beginning the process of exploring the site of Samuel Ball's Oak Island residence. Now, when the show ended, we were really just at the right at the beginning of that sort of archaeological dig, and I would expect to see a lot more of it when the show resumes, you know, sometime in the coming months, whenever that might be. So I thought in order to prepare for that, what I wanted to hopefully accomplish by talking to Dr. Keogh was to kind of pull the lens out a bit here, not just focus on Mr. Ball, but this entire population, this whole story of which Samuel Ball is only really one example. Now, I really don't think I can understand the story and the legends that have come up around Samuel Ball without acquiring a much better understanding of what really happened here during this time, not just to him but also the thousands of others who existed under similar conditions. So we're going to take a very, very short break. And when we come back, I'm going to be talking to the brilliant Dr. Carly Kehoe of St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So joining me now is the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Communities, and a professor of history at St. Mary's University, uh, Carly Kehoe, Dr. Carly Kehoe. How are you? Thank you for joining us. How is Nova Scotia? Um, thank you for inviting me. It's a little overcast today, and we had some rain overnight, but it's great. <laughs> we're, uh, we're, we're, doing, we're doing well up here. And you're doing well. Everybody's staying safe and staying healthy and all that stuff. That's the important thing now. Yeah, we've been we've been pretty fortunate um, in the Atlantic region with um, managing COVID nineteen. The provinces have been very very good, and and now we are able to kind of enjoy what we've called the Atlantic bubble, which means people in the Atlantic provinces can move around without quarantine. Um, but everybody's working really hard to keep it under control, just because it's very very dangerous. Another reason why I should move to Nova Scotia. Anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We brought you on to talk about a couple of topics. We're going to deal with one right now. Um, anybody familiar with Oak Island is familiar with the idea of um, former slaves joining the British Army and um, after the war fleeing, I guess, is the word we would say. Or at least this is the word I've come across. This is why I brought you on uh, to Nova Scotia, um, you know, in an attempt to gain their freedom out of plantations in the South during the Revolutionary War. This is the story of Samuel Ball, folks, if you haven't known that already. We'll get to him in a little bit. But first, I want to get some background on the situation, because it seems like for those of us who listen or research Oak Island, we really just focus on this one man. And and I think we have to sort of extrapolate a bit out, and that's why I have some some questions for you on all this. First, kind of some background stuff, like... Samuel Ball is said to have come to Nova Scotia in the late 18th century. So what was what what is that? What does Canada look like then in there? Um, <laughs> what does Nova Scotia look like at this time? Um, 
were slaves or, or enslaved people fleeing to Canada before the revolution? Is this a uniquely revolutionary thing? Uh, was slavery legal in Canada at the time? All that kind of stuff. Give, just give us a little background information <laughs> of where we were at this point, uh, you know, when the American Revolution hits. Sure. The first thing to point out is there was no Canada <laughs> at this time. That's like the major point to Excellent make. Excellent point. Um, Excellent point. Yeah. So Nova Scotia was a colony of, of, of the British Empire. And um, the British Empire was um, creaking and it was experiencing pushback, as you've mentioned, from the 13 colonies uh, that would become the United States. But in the British Empire, slavery was absolutely legal. And the slave trade was was very, very active at this time. And Nova Scotia, uh, slavery was legal here. There were slaves, um, enslaved people in Nova Scotia. Um, a lot had come with settlers. And there's a, a very um, excellent researcher, I think he's at the University of Vermont, Harvey Amani Whitfield, and he's written a lot on this. Um, so if any of your listeners are interested in reading more, I would suggest that they consult his work. Um, but no, can't, what... The colonies that became Canada um, have a a very big um, past when it comes to slavery. Uh, The British Empire only abolished the slave trade in 1807, and then slavery itself in 1838 when apprenticeship was abolished, not just when they decided to to say slavery was abolished in, in the early 1830s. This is a weird question. I don't know how I'm gonna how I'm gonna phrase this, but leading up to the point where we ended slavery in the U.S., there was a there was abolitionist is the word we used. It was you know a, a political movement towards it. Did such a thing yeah. exist in the British Empire at this time too? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. There were, um, and in Britain itself, uh, there, there was an, a, a very strong abolitionist movement, um, particularly as the 18th century came to a close. Um, you had people who were very opposed to the enslavement um, of Black African people, uh, but their their voices just weren't as loud as the the people who were in the pro-slavery lobby who were making an awful lot of money um, out of the trade and the labor, um, the enslaved labor. Uh, so yes, there was a strong abolitionist um, scene, and it was going to get much much stronger um, after the turn of the 19th century. Now, this is a question I have for the um, folks who are going down the founding fathers route of the Oak Island theorists here. Um, what did Canada think of the American Revolution? What was the, so, t- especially in the Maritimes, what was your, because, I mean, for instance, Benedict Arnold tried to invade Montreal. Uh, there was a lot of, uh, Canada was almost very involved, probably not as involved as it might have been if Benedict had his opportunities. <laughs> but uh, so what was, yeah. what's the general, what was the, what's the general thinking around this time of the American Revolution? Yeah. So again, I need to steer you away from this idea of Canada and towards an idea of colonies. So we have Quebec. Quebec was really, really important at this time because um, you had a a significant Catholic population in that colony uh, and that colony stayed loyal uh, when Protestants in the 13 colonies were not. And that was a big, big issue for for Britain, um, which considered itself to be a Protestant state. Um, but in terms of the sentiments, I think, you know, there was very clear loyalism here uh, in Nova Scotia, New Brun- what would become New Brunswick, um, Quebec. But there was also, I think, interest in what was happening 
south of here um, in some of the sentiments that um, people who were wanting to secede from Britain, some of the things that they were arguing for. Uh, so people were paying attention. And of course, there were connections. There were family connections, business connections, friend connections. Right. Um, so it's really hard to divide all of that and to say they were definitely this or definitely that. Um, but at the end of the day, they were definitely loyal to Britain. I mean, you're, you're going to laugh, but this is the absolute case. And, and uh, if you're not an American who feels the way I do here, um, you're, you're, you're just teasing yourself. Uh, we're Americans. We don't know anything about Canadian history. I can't help that. We just we just know very very little. I'm sorry to say we do. We know very little, other than hockey. Um, so, I guess my question is: Did the Stamp Act bother people in the Maritimes too? You know what I mean? Like, what was was, was or was that really a uniquely uh, what we would now call American thing? Um, there were a lot of things that bothered different people, and it depended, to be honest, on how it was affecting, you know, merchant trade um, right. or or movement or migration. Um, but obviously, it didn't bother people enough to push um, to separate. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, there are a lot of connections between the colonies that would become the United States and, and the ones up here. Um, yeah. So maybe a little bit more of that history <laughs> would be helpful <laughs> for, for you guys. Ab- too, totally. Absolutely. The only, I, again, hockey, that's where we know. Uh, anyway, I, I mean, I, I have a little bit of information in my head about these things, but as you could tell okay. from the first couple of questions that I asked, um, not all that much. Um, no, and it's fine. And this is where these conversations are helpful, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, that's why yeah. you're here because I can't do this on my own. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so what I what I want to ask you next is, um, again, we're, we're, uh, many, many people are fascinated with this man, Samuel Ball, um, and he uh, has a story, which I've said many times, but I'm curious about the typical way in which a person uh, went from a situation of enslavery in a plantation in the South to the British Army and then to Canada, which seems to be how many people did this how prevalent was this if slavery was still legal in in canada at the time it's something seems to be missing in this conversation you know um because we think of things along the lines of the underground railroad uh and how and you know uh people fleeing slavery to canada during the lead up to the civil war and at that point slavery was illegal in canada but at this yeah. point, you're saying it was still legal. So I'm just sort of thinking of the typical person here, not one man in particular, but how how somebody went from, uh, you know, a, a life of slavery to being in Canada. Um, it was an act of uh, of protest and it was a desire to define their own futures. And there was um, the 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 British government basically said, if there are any enslaved people who want to come and join our forces and fight uh, with with the British against the American um, the Americans, we will give you freedom and you will be entitled to land in the north. And so, a lot of people took that up as an opportunity and and escaped from their plantations and their owners. Their owners, I'm using in quotation marks, of course, um, to fight for the British Army. And it was a really, it was a radical act. It was a decision that they took for themselves. Um, that they just decided, no, this is how we are going to 
manage our futures. And uh, obviously, uh, it made a lot more sense for them than to remain uh, somebody's property. So how many people approximately, I mean, how many many people did this? How many people were able to do this? And and before we, I'm going to ask you to answer that question, but there was a famous proclamation by somebody in the United States uh, by a British, I don't know if it was Gage or one of those guys who sort of encouraged this, right? I mean, the 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 British Army was actively encouraging um, enslaved people to do this. Yes, um, and I, the I'm just going to get the name of of the gentleman, um, but there were there's an estimate at this time post um, loyalist um, black loyalists about 3,500 people uh, came up to okay. what well, like New Brunswick. Uh, and Nova Scotia, um, and they came up because this is where they were going to be, where they were promised they were going to be granted land. Um, and there was, and I can't remember the name of of the British uh, Army person who had made this declaration. Basically, if you come and join our forces, you will yeah. be given your freedom and you will be given land. Um, and but that that was a big deal. Um, the problem is that when they arrived, they started to arrive here. Um, what they had been promised did not materialize um, easily. And so you had um, a lot of people who went to New Brunswick, but they weren't welcome in New Brunswick, and so um, joined those who had come to Nova Scotia. Um, but a big problem was that there there was significant prejudice here um, among the, the white settlers, and they, they were made to feel unwelcome. And many of them actually left Nova Scotia and migrated to Sierra Leone. Yeah, that was the next question I had for you is what was oh. life like? I mean, after after they I mean, I assume they joined the army, they fight in the war probably for a certain yeah. amount of time. Right. I mean, they probably must have had a conscription of some kind um, or they had maybe they were were uh, conscripted to fight till the end of the conflict. Uh somehow managed to get out of the United States <laughs> during all this, um, which I find that alone must have been uh, a, a difficult thing to do. I mean, did these people get to Canada by way of Britain? Did they, did Both. they have to go Both. back to Britain and then go back to Canada after the war was over? How did, how does, because I, I mean, for instance, Samuel Ball, I believe served in the army until the end of the war. And then these, what, what was the typical situation here? And, and were these all, were these people all alone? I mean, they must, some of them must have had families they left behind. Um, some of them would have had families they left behind. Some of them would have had families that they would have had, but you have to understand also, um, one of the big things about enslaved, enslaved people is when they arrived on a plantation, obviously, um, before they even got to a plantation, they were split up. And so they, they, you know, they didn't, travel with their family members they didn't stay together so it was actually one of the ways of controlling was to alienate and isolate so you have a lot of individuals um but in terms of them moving up to to nova scotia um they would have arrived by boat often through the the main ports um in nova scotia um as loyalist refugees basically get out of the 13 colonies go up to a territory that is still owned by britain now they weren't alone. They were also loyalist um, white folks that did yeah, the same thing. Yeah, who were thing. also slave owners. A yeah. lot of them. Yeah, that's right. So like, they let's came, not exonerate, right? <laughs> right, but they but they fled the new the colonies as well after the war. 
So you had yeah, an influx of people. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of people. Um, and obviously the, the whites would have had priority on the boats. Right. Um, and they were people who had lost significant amount of property and money. Um, and one of the things that they felt they had lost um, was were their slaves. And so um, we shouldn't be under any illusion that the loyalists who came to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick were in any way sympathetic. Right. right so right. we need to be really clear um, on just the different, well, the complexities of, of this movement um, of all these different people. And, and in fact, any loyalist who could bring her or his um, enslaved people with them did. Wow. And that's why you have a lot of enslaved people in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. That's why it was here. Slavery was here. So talk about uh, a typical person in this situation, what life was like in Nova Scotia or in the Maritimes. So if, if somebody came to the Maritimes as a free person, um, they experienced significant prejudice, um, significant backlash, real major challenges, things that they had been promised just weren't delivered, or if they did receive anything, they had to really push hard for it. And so it wasn't an easy place. And I think there was, um, you know, the, the hope that it would be different, but in fact, it was, it was really difficult. And they were coming to a society that was not welcoming, um, but also society, like there wasn't a lot of infrastructure still. And so settlement was very, in the very early stages and you're thinking about, the, you know, extensive roads or bridges or things that just made it easier to get around. Those things were being built. They, they, there was nothing that really, um, you could say, made, made settlement easy at right. this point. Yeah. So and on top of that, um, the former uh, the former enslaved people had the prejudice and the backlash uh, on top of all of that. You know, and the fact that a lot of people thought that that they could just, you know, be servants or um, help them to establish themselves rather than help um, to build a, a stronger society that was a little bit more just. So what's the legacy of all this when we look back on it now? I mean, you mentioned a little bit before that a lot of them left. Yeah. Um, but what, what it, when, when, when you look back from a historical perspective now, like we do here in, in the United States with, with yeah. similar situations, um, What's the legacy of it now, in your opinion? In, in my opinion, uh, and I grew up here um, on Cape Breton Island, and I didn't know anything about this history. I did not know anything about the that, can, that Nova Scotia had a, um, uh, an African Nova Scotian population. So one of the legacies is racism. Uh, and one of the legacies is the fact that we have a pretty significant racism problem in the province, um, and we haven't addressed it. And, you know... As a history, I'm a specialist in S Scottish history, in fact. And when you look at Nova Scotia, you associate it with the Scottish past. Um, but in fact, a lot of the Scots who arrived here actually came after um, uh, the formerly enslaved people. And yet, um, their legacy, their heritage is not seen as. Uh, something that needs to be promoted as as part of the province's fabric. Um, it's starting to come out now, but not without a fight and not without people really advocating for that. So that is a legacy and it's a dangerous legacy because it leaves a lot of people to think that 
um, we didn't have a race problem here, um, and and we do. And there's, um, you know, the African Nova Scotian population, and then we have the indigenous, the the in, the Mi'kmaq here, right. um, and there's equal racism. And so, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. That's the legacy, in my opinion. And as a professor, I have to work through this. Um, responsibly as a researcher, but also in a way that helps my students to understand, you know, what we missed. Yeah, it's a fascinating... And who, and who is Nova Scotian? <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's a fascinating field. I mean, even just going down it slightly, you know, that things come to you, you know, as you're, as you're looking through the history of these things that, yeah. you know, you're, that's, well, that's a great thing about history. You're constantly uncovering things like this. And, and this is another one of those things. Um, I mentioned to you a little bit about Samuel Ball, and this is not a question about the man, but um, very quickly, this is a man who ended up with a lot of land, apparently money. Um, A lot of people who are in the Oak Island field like to say he must have found a treasure. I like to think he just was a really smart and very determined guy. Um, Is he atypical of people who came from that situation to end up owning land uh, on multiple islands and farming and being involved in logging and all sorts of stuff. I mean, w- there's not a lot of records either. I guess that's another question. Not a lot of records are kept of these things. So a lot, I, I believe a lot of the research on the man is a little bit sketchy um, as right. to exactly what he did. We can only kind of make assumptions. Um, is he atypical of, of so, that population? Um, I, yeah, I'm not hugely familiar with with um, Samuel Ball, um, but what's being described would be atypical. Um, it was really, really hard to make a go of things here. And um, even now, like this year, there are still people from the African Nova Scotian community who are fighting for title to the land that they should have had way back. Right. So it's not, it's his experience, I wouldn't say is characteristic of of the majority of, of the people who came up here, the, the former enslaved people. Yeah, because they were promised a plot of land, correct? And then were yeah. not given yeah. to them. Samuel Ball, yeah, the land on Oak Island, he purchased. Obstacle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I, you know, good luck to the people <laughs> right. who are researching this. <laughs> but this is this is one of the challenges with history, um, especially for underrepresented groups. Um, a lot of them were were more concerned, as you might imagine, with the day-to-day survival than making sure that they left paper records for historians 200 years later to read. And so we also need to get more creative, like archaeological records um, suggest abject poverty um, for a number of the the Black settlements. And, um, And again, we just need to be more open to new source materials. Um, It's easy to go into the archive and look at the paper stuff. It's harder to actually go to a place where there were settlements and walk the land and see it. Um, So that's where I think interdisciplinary collaboration could help us understand more about stories like this. Were there communities? I mean, Samuel Ball lived sort of by himself amongst, um, you know, non-African in a non-African community. At least it seems that way from what we're looking at. But there were communities. They did settle together. Just like the yep, Irish they, or whoever. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, there was, you know, moral support, strength when you have of people course. that you have a shared experience. I mean, the, the same way that um, migrants coming into Canada, the United States, will settle today, they, they will look for people who can speak their language, who have the same religion, um, who just have a, a shared something to make settlement easier. Um, so, yeah, there were communities, but there were also, like I said, 
there were people who were still enslaved and they didn't have a choice about where they got to live. And so they, it, you know, it would be totally normal um, for, for you to find records of um, a single black person in an all white community. Right. And it's pretty clear in most cases that that person would have been enslaved. Now, for most people who don't know who Samuel Ball is, don't worry, you're not alone. Uh, Many of the most Oak Island-obsessed researchers and authors over the decades have also struggled finding out exactly who he was and what his life was like. Let me just give you a little bit of what we do know beyond some of the things we've already mentioned. Samuel Ball was born into slavery in 1765 on a plantation in South Carolina. Only a few weeks after the American Revolution broke out, James Murray, the fourth Earl of Dunmar, and also then the governor of the Virginia colony, uh, the guy whose name neither Dr. Keogh or I could recall during our conversation there, (laughs) he issued a proclamation which basically offered freedom, as we mentioned, to any enslaved people who would escape from their owners and join the British Army to fight against the American colonists. Samuel Ball took Murray up on his offer. So incredibly, at maybe as much as 10 years old, Samuel Ball fled captivity and joined the Loyalist cause, an amazingly brave kid to say the least. He served for nearly the entirety of the revolution, and after the war, he was among the thousands of other Loyalists, both former slaves and, you know, non-slaves, white folks alike, who fled to Nova Scotia. Now, according to the records, in 1787, Samuel Ball paid eight pounds sterling for a plot of land on Oak Island. It's important to note This was a really big sum of money for that period and for the amount of land he received. Now, here's where things get sketchy. It's very possible Ball purchased this land because he was friends with Daniel McGinnis, the guy who apparently discovered the money pit. McGinnis was also a loyalist in the American Revolution who left the colonies for Nova Scotia after the war. Now, we don't know this for sure, but what we do know is that they became neighbors and friends later on. Now, what we've learned from Dr. Keogh today is the extent to which Samuel Ball really is an outlier here in this story. This former slave who, as a boy, ran away from the only home he ever knew to join the British army in a fight without a penny to his name would, in the coming years, come to own multiple expensive lots of land on Oak Island, on nearby Hook Island, which I believe that was then renamed Sam's Island, and also, I think, at least 100 acres of land on the mainland. And we don't know this for sure, but we think Samuel Ball was certainly a farmer, and and he maybe worked as a fisherman and perhaps even was in the logging business somehow. Either way, this guy did very, very well for himself all of the cards clearly stacked against him in his life. Now, I'm not here to tell you Samuel Ball was only successful because he found some of the treasure. That clearly isn't the case when you consider the amount he paid for Oak Island's for his land in Oak Island eight years before the discovery of the money pit. So he came to Oak Island with money. What I have always felt about Samuel Ball is treasure or no treasure, this was one remarkable man who lived an incredibly successful life despite having to metaphorically paddle upstream almost the entire way. My hope is that as we go through the process of learning more and more about Samuel Ball, especially through this new archaeological work being done by Laird Niven and seeing a lot of Ball 
on the television show in the upcoming season, which I anticipate we will. I hope we can keep in mind what we learned here today from Dr. Keogh. Thanks to her, I think we can hopefully step back from the treasure a bit and appreciate the history behind what Samuel Ball and thousands of others like him endured while trying really just to find a better life in Nova Scotia. So that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. My heartfelt thanks again to Dr. Carly Keogh of St. Mary's University in Nova Scotia. Uh, Like I said, you'll be hearing from her again soon. Uh, We have a fascinating discussion coming up about the Scottish influence in Nova Scotia uh, during the colonial period. So stay tuned for that. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, wherever you listen. Somehow, I don't understand, but it does. It helps to get the word out on the show and uh, drive more listeners to the podcast. That's always a good thing. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Give us a like there. It'd be much appreciated. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you could do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And please bear in mind, if you send me an email and you don't want it read on a podcast, make sure you mention that. If not, it's fair game for a future show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island. <laughs>